Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. Season 7 of Moral Matters will start in another week, on September 14th, but we have one more episode to share from another favorite podcast during the break. Aaron Rothstein hosts Searching for Medicine Soul. He and I had a fantastic conversation about If I Betray These Words, and we wanted to share his episode with a physician author we've long admired, Dr. Danielle Offrey. We've put a link to Searching for Medicine Soul in the show notes, in case you want to listen to their other episodes, along with our usual information. Let's have a listen. I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Danielle Elfrey. She's a clinical professor of medicine at the New York University School of Medicine and has cared for patients at New York's Bellevue Hospital for more than two decades. She's the author of seven acclaimed books, and her writing appears in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Atlantic, as well as The Lancet and The New England Journal of Medicine. Danielle is a founder and the editor-in-chief of Bellevue Literary Review, the first literary journal to arise from a medical setting, now an independent nonprofit literary arts organization. Danielle, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. You know, it's inspiring. You've written so much over the years and been so prolific as a physician writer that it's easy to assume that you started off as a writer. But in addition to an MD, you have a PhD in pharmacology. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Neuroscience. In neuroscience. How did you get into medical writing? What what took you down this path? And how do you find time for it? Well, it certainly wasn't a planned thing. I mean, I certainly as a kid loved to read and write, but as an undergraduate, I was a physiology major. I did the MD, PhD, as you mentioned, and kind of planned to work in a lab, maybe be in clinic one day a week. That was sort of the, the drive for the MD, PhD students. And so the training took about 10 years, MD, PhD, residency. In fact, I was started out in neurology, but I did my internship in medicine, and I really fell in love with the patient's stories, which is why I ended up staying in medicine. I even remember the patient, Mr. Feliciano, with endocarditis, who um, didn't have insurance, so couldn't go home for IV antibiotics. So he stayed in Bellevue for weeks. And I had to go every single day, do the EKG, listen to his heart and talk to him. And over time, I got to just hear these amazing stories. And, and it was so captivating. But it was a long 10 years. For me, it was during the HIV epidemic. So a pretty bleak slog in many respects. A lot of patients dying, quite brutal deaths, mostly our age. And so when I finished that 10 years, I really wanted some time off. And I'd heard from a colleague about something called locum tenens, which is temp work for doctors. I knew nothing about that. And every one of my advisors said, it's a terrible idea. You'll lose your connection to you know, academic medicine. You'll forget all your skills. You'll never get back into academic medicine. It's a quote from a faculty member who remains on faculty or shall remain unnamed. But someone else, a social worker said, you know, I think they just might be jealous. I thought, you know, that's it. I'm out of here. And so I took off what turned out to be 18 months after residency. And I did, you know, four, eight-week stints at various small towns around the country, making some money, doing some medicine. And then I would take off time to travel as long as the money, you know, lasted. Then I would call, collect from Oaxaca, you know, what do you got? And I would take the next the next gig. And there was nothing to do, I should say, in these mostly small towns when you come from Manhattan. And so I found myself starting to write down the stories of the patients I had met during my training. And I remember during my training that the intensity of the stories and connections really impressed me. And I recognized that I would probably never again be this close to patients. And I should probably write this down. It's a really singularly intimate relationship. But of course, you know, who's got time and and we're too busy and I think, but also maybe it was probably too close to the emotional bone at the time. So it was in these travels and working in these small towns that I began to write these stories down, not as any sort of plan for a book for sure, not even as any sort of, you know, closure, a term that I, I dislike intensely, but as a place to put them. You know, they're so intense. There's like, it's like an open wound. If you don't put it somewhere, it's really hard to function with that open wound. But of course, I always wanted to come back to Bellevue, especially after working in many other settings. I realized how much I loved Bellevue and the the wild chaos and the freedom and the interesting patients and people. And so when I came back, um, it just so happened there was an economic crisis, kind of then as now, and there was a hiring freeze. And so when the freeze unfroze, the only spot available was a 60% position, something I'd, something I'd never considered, you know, but whatever, I had student loans, so I took it. 
And then on one of my days off, I picked up a writing brochure on Second Avenue, one of those little yellow boxes, and began taking writing classes and working on those stories and submitting them to small literary journals. And then I remember when one of my writing teachers said, you know, she had missed a stop reading one of the stories. And so that means time to get an agent. So I, I did get an agent and was turned down by, you know, 13 of New York City's finest publishing houses. And then I had a publisher from Beacon Press in Boston call me. I wasn't attending at that point. And she said, you know, do you have a book? I said, in fact, I have this collection. And I, I did commit my one act of theft. And that is I, I, I borrowed a prepaid FedEx label from my chair's office because I couldn't get out of the hospital in time for FedEx to be open. So I sent them my manuscript and then I ended up working with, and got rid of the agent, by the way, and, and uh, have worked with Beacon Press ever since for, for seven books. That's incredible. Let's talk a bit about, I guess, the barriers between physician and patient. And you've written a lot about the electronic health record. So in a recent article you wrote, a Physicians Foundation survey reported that doctors spend on average 23% of their time doing non-clinical paperwork. Another study found that doctors devote 49% of their time to desk work and the electronic medical record twice as much as they spend with actual patients. And then a few years ago, you wrote an op-ed for Stat News about the electronic health record. And you wrote, a typical medical visit these days consists of the doctor wrestling with the computer while the patient gazes off at the supply cabinet. Unsurprisingly, patients participate less in the interaction when their doctors are ensconced in the EMR, and they acutely feel the diminishment of eye contact. Most substantially, patients have noticed how the electronic medical record decimates staff morale and recognize that this is not without consequence for their health. Primary care doctors now spend an average six hours a day doing data entry, twice as much as they spend on direct patient care, and then many routinely clock in additional hours of charting at home. So medical care, as you point out, has become data entry drudgery, and I experienced this myself as well. The electronic health record was not originally developed as a tool to help the doctor and patient figure out what's going on. It, it was developed as a billing tool, is my understanding. And while I agree that there are maybe some advantages to the electronic health record for research purposes or for, I guess, well, billing, there have been some profoundly negative consequences as well. How did we get to the point where physicians seem to be treating the paper or the screen and the computer instead of the patient? And what does a system with a healthy electronic health record look like? It's a complex question. And let me just preface it by saying that I think the EMR, or the EHR is not completely evil. I mean, there are great things about it. You know, for those of us who practice before the EMR, I mean, you know, the where's the med patient's chart? It's in the dermatology clinic and, you know, it's locked. And where's the x-ray? It's in the surgeon's back pocket. And so we wasted tons of time tracking down medical records and x-rays and all sorts of things, you know, finding the patient's med list. So there's lots of things that the EMR does really well. And I don't want to give that short shrift. It, it really has made a positive difference. I mean, listen, you can read the ophthalmologist's handwriting, you know, which you couldn't do back in the day. Not that you can understand what they're saying, but at least you can read the, the, the English. But as, as you mentioned, it really has taken on this life of its own. It's become this own beast. And then you have to sort of feed the beast to, to keep it going. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Some of that is obviously billing, as you alluded to. It was developed as a billing system primarily with clinical care kind of tacked on at the back end, and you can certainly feel that when you use it as a patient or, or a doctor or a nurse. And then various regulations, you know, requirements, all sorts of things that need to be done. We can do them pretty easily by just tacking them onto the medical record, some of which are helpful, some of which just sort of clog the system. And then reports get generated and you haven't done enough of X, so then another thing gets in there and then it just keeps sort of cycling. So, so we got to this crazy system partly because we don't have a unified medical system. Many countries that have a uniform medical system have one EMR. So uh, you know, imagine for us, we have to interface with all different EMRs, all different insurance companies, so additional busy work created because we have this patchwork system in the U.S. that's that's not typical in other countries. And we've created this huge middle manager bureaucracy level. There's a fantastically depressing chart that looks at the growth of physicians and administrators since the 70s. And I think physicians have doubled. We have twice as many doctors, but we have 10 times as many administrators. The, the, the graph is, is, it's unbelievable. There's now something like a 16 to 1 ratio of non-physicians to physicians. Only a few of which are clinical people like nurses and, and, and nurse aides. The rest are all 
administrators, many, 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 many of them. I don't know what they're all doing. And I wish half of them could be, you know, nurse and PA positions and, and, and nutritionist positions and, and not paper pushers. So we've built a system that keeps requiring more and more paperwork to, to keep it going. I mean, what would a better system look like? Well, I often wonder if the folks who develop the systems really do clinical work. Have they sat in the office or on the wards with the clinicians to see what the impact is? And I, I'm sure they've done some, but it doesn't really feel like it. And, and it feels like it, the primacy of what I want from the medical record, I want to be able to know what's going on with the patient clinically, to be able to reach the important data points, you know, in a fast way, you know, their most recent note, what are their clinical problems, their medications, their allergies, these things, but then not be bogged down by, by the other stuff. And it seems like if we have computer programmers sophisticated enough to make, you know, Pegasus spyware that you can spy on anyone in the world and you could have the NSA snooping on your Aunt Millie in Minnesota, we should be able to make an EMR that kind of does what we need and relegates the other stuff to the background. I don't know why we can't do it. I totally agree. Yeah. I, you, know, you know, you mentioned this administrative creep and I, I think about the the essay you wrote for the Times oh, was a few years ago about physician exploitation, which sounds like a, a paradox. You know, physicians have fairly comfortable lives usually. Is this really something that we should be writing home about? But I, I, I think there's real truth to this. And, and I, I see kind of how these tasks just accumulate and accumulate for physicians. More labs and tests, more specialists and subspecialists, more medical literature, and, and it feels like doctors are somehow more or ought to be more available. Or there's some expectation that they're more available for things that even seem to have less relevance for actually doctoring, whether it's you know filling out uh, insurance paperwork or getting approval from insurance companies to, to get patients' medications that they need, more hospital committees to serve on. I mean, I can go on and on, as I'm sure you can too. And as you wrote in this essay, for most doctors and nurses, it is unthinkable to walk away without completing your work because dropping the ball could endanger your patients. I stopped short of accusing the system of drawing up a premeditated business plan to manipulate medical professionalism into free labor. Rather, I see it as a result of administrative creep. And we just can't say no to these things as they accumulate. What are the consequences or some other consequences of this administrative creep? And how do we as a profession respond to this? Well, you know, I typically, whenever I want to try and make a, a point to the higher ups, the people in the suits or the decision makers, I try to frame things in, in really two ways. One is patient satisfaction and the other is patient safety, because those are two things that have the, the attention of administrators because there's money on the table for both of those. Reimbursement rates are now affected by patient safety metrics as well as patient satisfaction scores. So those things really count. We can argue till the cows come home about, you know, doing our mission, doing right for our patients. I don't think anyone cares upstairs, but they do care about patient safety and about patient satisfaction. And so often when we approach patient satisfaction, we do window dressing stuff like, you know, nice coffee machines in the waiting room or valet parking, but ask a patient if they want a fancy coffee machine or more time with their doctor? Or do they want valet parking or when they call the nurse on the ward, they're able to come right away? That's what really counts for patient satisfaction. And patients know the difference. And I think would respond much more strongly if they had more time with their doctor or could reach them more easily. So I think that's one way to make the point. The other thing is patient safety. And there's no doubt when we are getting distracted by the endless sort of minutia of, of non-clinical work, we drop the ball on other things. I mean, I know I know that I cut corners all the time and it is the worst feeling. When you're committed to what you do, which is what I think 99.9% .9 of people in healthcare are, then to force them to cut corners, that's morally corrosive. We don't want to, you know, just briefly breeze over the med list. We want to go through it and check it all. But if I don't have time, I just keep sort of like, you know, I accidentally refill the medication that had been DC'd recently because I didn't go through the whole thing in detail. And I really felt awful. It could have been a disaster. Luckily, it wasn't. But that kind of thing, I'm sure it happens a thousand times a day. I don't even know about it. And so making the point on patient safety is the way I think that we can get the attention of, of, of those in decision-making positions. Have you noticed any changes using this strategy or any other hospitals in the country that are doing it well or doing it right? 
you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if the data are out there. But what I do know is that whenever I now encounter something in the EMR that I think could endanger patient safety, no matter how stupid, I now file a patient safety report. Forget emailing my supervisors. You know, they'll, they'll cluck and nod and agree. But a patient safety report has consequences. Someone has to follow up with that. So I, I did one recently. I, I think there were some... I even forget what the details were, but it was something that that made you do something that didn't feel right. And, you know, in in the appropriately bad situation, it could really have a bad outcome. And so I filed that and someone is now tasked with following up on that. And I keep doing that because it it gives them like some fire under their their uh, feet, but it it goes on their ledger. They have to follow up on that. So I use that as my strategy for, for getting the attention rather than just writing a heartfelt email. Makes sense. And I'll say that it has worked. I did file a patient safety complaint with a situation with some of the lab tests. You know, patients see their lab tests even before we do. And even the most minor thing can be marked abnormal and or be difficult to read. And we had a situation at least twice for myself where a patient checked their COVID result and the reference range is negative. But they had a positive test result. But they, the reference range was in the same font. And so that negative they thought that was it, and they went to work. And I, you know, 12 hours later, I called them, and they had already gone to work and exposed their colleagues, you know, to COVID unknowingly. So I filed a patient safety report. It's stupid formatting, but it really has consequences. And there, too, even, the fact that you can't always be calling the patient as soon as that result pops up. It's just impossible. But it's a, there's almost an expectation that you do by the system, I think, because this is, it's designed in such a way that these results just pop up for everyone all at once. And it just, there's something that's, that makes me very uneasy about that. I will say fundamentally, I think that patients own their information and should have access to everything. But we have to recognize that when patients see, you know, the fire hose of lab results, and all it takes is your chloride level to be off by one point to get the same abnormal you know, alarm as a hematocrit that's dropped to nothing. You know, it, it makes no distinctions. I've had so many emails from patients about those chloride levels. And they Google them and they're sure they have cancer. The chloride, the bicarb is off by a point. I mean, really, you know, the, the most minuscule MCHC on, on the hematocrit that's been calculated is off by 0.1%. And they've Googled it. And there's some cancer that's going to present with that. And so beside the time, that's a lot of anxiety and a lot of excess stress and, and 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 it's unnecessary. And of course, it takes a ton of time from us. And then, so what do we do? We start checking on the weekends. And especially things, biopsy reports will turn up, you know? And I don't know about you, but if I were a patient, I don't want to find out that, that I have cancer by reading my, my chart. I would like my beloved and trusted physician to call me and talk to me directly. But it's happened that patients uncover that and and you know, that seems like that that's not the ideal outcome. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that, the time thing, because uh, one study of internists showed that 20% of their total work was spent after hours, which is the equivalent of like an extra day of work every week. How do you see, uh, you know, it's a very general question, but how do you see a, a healthy balance between personal life and the vocation of medicine, which by its nature is very demanding and, and should be so. But there there is there has to be some balance there, no? Sure. And there's two parts to that that question or that problem. So one is obviously how we personally balance it and that's our sort of whatever work life balance. But there's the other side of how the system forces us to do this. And 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 often we end up with the responsibility of fixing the problems of the system. So you know, we have so much work that we have to work on our weekends and nights, and we're told to get some more wellness, you know, do Pilates, do yoga. I'm like, I don't need yoga. I need an assistant. That's what I need, you know, or I need an extra, you know, half day to go through my labs. So I, I'm always a little leery of this work-life balance because it puts the onus on us to sort of achieve our own balance because we're a little bit stressed out and burned out. No, we're, we're being overworked, and which is often now called this moral, which is often now called this moral injury in that we're forced to do things or make decisions that we wouldn't normally do, such as cutting corners, because of, of the extra work. So when it comes to the personal side, the part that we have control over, it is important that we you know, have some kind of balance, that we also have families and, and we want to be doing things that, that give us 
you know, nourishment in the rest of our lives, whether it's arts or, or physical activity, you know, being with family, doing volunteer work. And, and I think it's important that we be fulfilled, that we put on our oxygen mask before we, you know, put, put it on for someone else. And the same way it is for a parent. You, you'll be, you're a lousy parent if you don't have your own sleep and fulfillment as well. And the same, same goes for, for medical workers. But I don't want to, again, let the system off the hook they can just have us do more and more and just, you know, prescribe wellness modules for us. You know, when I wrote that piece for the Times, what, what I recognized is that because we have this commitment that we don't leave until the job is done, the system, which has gotten more and more ungainly, has recognized, even if inadvertently, that that's a forever elastic resource, right? Because doctors will never go home until the work is done. So you can keep pushing more and they'll still do it because we're not going to leave. And there are other types of jobs where you clock out, your time's done, you clock out no matter what. But you're not going to leave. If someone's asked you to check the potassium, you won't leave till you, you've done that. And that's, I think, really crossed the line from sort of that's a valuable part of the job that we, we know holds it together to, I think, important on exploitation, that we know that doctors will simply do the work at night and on weekends because we're not going to let our patients down. And I think we should push back on that, that, you know, it, it takes advantage of professionalism and not in a good way. I think finance is also a major, major driver of this too. And it's remarkable to see from, from this perspective how money plays such an indelible and outsized role in medicine. I mean, it's true of most things, I guess, in life, unfortunately. But some of this, I think, is understandable, right? There's invention, development, and manufacturing of, of equipment and drugs people should be handsomely rewarded if they really help humanity. But there is something profoundly wrong in our system. As a case in point, you wrote a fantastic op-ed again in the Times a few years ago about the MO of, of nonprofit hospitals and how they essentially operate in, I guess, certain circumstances as for-profit hospitals. So they get tax breaks even as they chase these profits. And these are these nonprofit hospitals are the kinds that many of us work at, at academic medical institutions with trainees. So you cite this example, Morristown Hospital, New Jersey, which lost most of its property tax exemption because it was found to be behaving as a for-profit institution. And the judge in the case wrote that if all nonprofit hospitals operate like this, then modern nonprofit hospitals are essentially legal fictions. So this no doubt, I think, plays some role in in the issues that we've been talking about. What went wrong here that allowed our system to go down this road? And should the federal government remove these tax exemption statuses from these nonprofit institutions? How do you kind of think about solving this problem? Well, well it's, it's a huge problem. I think it really goes back to how our system, our healthcare system was set up. And of course, we, we never had a universal healthcare system. And we started out with health insurance being tied to our jobs. We needed that post-war to encourage workers, and that just stuck. And so we've developed this, this piecemeal kind of approach that people get health insurance with job A, and they lose it when they go to job B, or work at jobs that don't have it. So it's, it's a for-profit model. Now, imagine if our you know fire protection system was a for-profit model, that you only got the fire people to come you know, um, if you had signed up and paid for the plan. Of course, we would never do that because anyone's house burning down is a risk to everyone. And unfortunately, we haven't viewed healthcare in that way. Other countries have. And although we have, quote, the best healthcare system in the world, as evidenced by these beautiful, glamorous nonprofits that are academic centers and do amazing work and research, I, I won't, you know, you know, make that a negative. Yet, how does the US rank in health outcomes? We are dead last. For every measure, just about compared to comparable countries, to every developed country out there, we are last. And you name it, life expectancy, maternal mortality, child mortality, infantile illness, it, it, is, it is so embarrassing that we can have the mecca of research and technology and development, and yet we cannot get, you know, maternal mortality correct. You know, such an, a basic thing, we cannot get that childhood poverty, all of these things, childhood diseases, vaccination rates, um, really the basics. So I think that is because of the, the financial driver. And yes, people should be rewarded for doing great work. But if you look at, for example, pharmaceutical companies that, that justify their high prices because of the 
research and development R&D they do? Yes, indeed. But how much do they spend on marketing? Twice as much as they spend on research and development. So yes, they we need to pay for their labs. They should earn money for that too. But we know that they are doing incredibly well and you know much more I think than they deserve for this. And then of course, there are all the middle managers, the, for example, pharmacy benefit managers. I did a piece on insulin pricing because I couldn't figure out why it's so expensive. Right, insulin now is generic. Right, it's been around for a hundred years. When Banting and Best discovered it, they sold the uh, patent rights for one dollar because they said nobody should profit from this life-saving drug. Well, you look at it now; insulin costs hundreds of dollars. Patients are going bankrupt on this. They're rationing their insulin. And what I learned is this whole concept of pharmacy benefit managers that are this black box middleman between healthcare companies. Uh, insurance companies and the and the drug companies, and they negotiate the prices, and you know they make quite a, a a pretty profit on that. And they don't offer anything; they're not developing drugs, they're not taking care of patients, uh, really nothing. They're just a really kind of a rent seeking kind of you know middle person that our system enables. Most other when I wrote that article, I got letters from people in Europe saying, "I am so confused." Insulin, you know, doesn't cost me, or albuterol is over the counter, or I pay $5 no matter how much insulin I take. They were shocked that patients with diabetes in America have to face this life and death decision about money. They, they were so saddened and so sympathetic, and they couldn't wrap their heads around why we would have a profit margin on a life or death medication. I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about medical school and medical students. In your book, What Doctors Feel, you argue that medical students come to medical school with a strong sense of empathy, a, a desire to help. But after they have contact with patients, you know, in the third, usually in the third, second or third year, they emerge with their empathy battered. So their ideals seem to crash once they actually see patients. There's some probably some metaphor here for the fall of humans or something in Genesis. But why why does this happen? What occurs during this year that really batters the empathy of medical students? Well, I would say that I don't think it's because of their exposure to patients. I don't think that is what does it. I think it's the exposure to the realities of our system that does it. You know, these students get there, there's a curriculum for them to learn, but there's also what we call the hidden curriculum of how it's done. Because they're not just learning medicine, they're learning how to be doctors in our society. Everything from, you know, what kind of white coat to wear, what kind of stethoscope, but how we talk to nurses, how we talk to patients, how we process medical care. And that can often be very dehumanizing. And so when they start to get a view into the underbelly of how the healthcare system works, that really clashes with their ideals. They see patients as commodities or they see patients being treated as commodities. They see insurance companies making decisions about what the patient's you know, care can be. They see jaded and, and uh, worn down healthcare professionals who might be demeaning to patients or their coworkers or, or other nurses. So that part, because when they were choosing medical school, they didn't know about that part. They knew about taking care of patients, helping people, doing good. Largely, that's what brings people to medicine these days. I think the days of going to medicine for money are long gone. You can make a buck with a much easier job path. <laughs> you know, going to law school, you don't have to stay up all night or get puked on your shoes. And, and so I think we've weeded out people who just went into medicine for money. Most students now, you know, two, two to one really want to do something good. But then they hit the reality of our healthcare system, which is, you know, a very unfair system. And they see uninsured patients suffering. They see patients being turned away. And, and that's when they really have this sort of attack on their ideals. Humor plays a, a good role in that there are some I don't know, the, you see all of this really terrible stuff and it can sometimes be a release for for people. And I found that that was true sometimes for myself and my colleagues. And I think, of course, about The House of God um, by Samuel Shem. And there's a point to the book about the isolating nature of medical training and the practice of medicine. And as you write about your own experience, you say, it makes me wonder if humor could be a teaching tool in and of itself. What do you mean by that? Well, I agree with you that that humor does play an important role as a way to put things in perspective, to release some of our stress and anxiety. But I think we have to always just be careful 
in whether the humor is at the expense of our patients or is it sort of a sort of about the system? You know, are we punching up or punching down? And I think when we make humor or jokes, you know, up the hierarchical ladder, that's okay. We make them down the ladder or or at patients or people who are more vulnerable, then that's when we, I think, give up part of our soul. And so I think it's important to recognize how we do that. But I think it is important to to laugh and to, you know, poke fun some of the stupidity of our system. We do have to be careful to, to think about our settings. You know, sometimes you'll be at the nurse's station, someone cracks a joke and you're laughing, but there could be a family member there in their, you know, at the moment when they're in a stressful situation, hearing people laughing, even if unrelated, is so jarring. So we do have to be super careful about setting, I think, content. But I, I, I think it can be so incredibly helpful. You know, I refused to be the house of God for years and years because I thought it was going to be demeaning, sexist. And when I finally read it, it was all of those things. And it was hysterical. I laughed so hard at so many things because they really, you know, they pointed out this, the, the absurdity of so much of what we do. And, and that kind of humor, I, I think, can be life-saving. Have you noticed the, a change in medical students in the way they've approached humor over the years? Have, do you think things pretty much remained steady? Or has there been a, a, a difference that you've noticed or a change recently? Oh, there's a difference. I think people are much more sensitive to, you know, the sort of dehumanizing humor about patients, you know, objectifying them, hits or, you know, that we would get. That has gone by the wayside. I think it's just it just no longer feels acceptable and not because we're so politically correct, but it's like, you know, smoking, it's just no longer acceptable. And, you know, in polite company, it, it's gone by the wayside and, and, you know, good riddance. We didn't, we didn't need that type of humor. So it was a little bit different. I mean, there's maybe enhanced sensitivity, sometimes oversensitivities, you know, and I think finding the line of helping our students also be resilient to sort of the wide range of experiences and, and, and you can't be too fragile in this field. You have to be willing to, you know, hear and see the range of responses that people have and, and take that without having to get a trigger warning or, or a safe space that, you know, we have to, you know, develop our own resilience. Although, of course, calling out when there's something that's clearly, you know, over the line. And I want to ask you, this is, it's a segue or maybe a not, not so eloquent segue, but there, I want to ask you about the fear of mistakes because we, we so rarely dig deep into this fear as physicians and as trainees it's more of like a casual thing. Oh, like make sure you document carefully, cover yourself. Don't miss this or that kind of lab. There's a defensiveness in this approach to medicine that is somewhat necessary and important, but one that we never really kind of open the floor up to discuss. And I, I think identified very strongly with this passage from your book, What Doctors Feel. But as I look around at my colleagues, I think that I fall within the acceptable range of capability that I'm probably not much worse or much better than they. When I started speaking to them, I realized that they all carried around the same fear, fear of harming patients, fear of not being good enough. And you uh, point out that there is a culture of shame built into medicine or built into the people who go into medicine. And the idea, this fear or shame surrounding mistakes, which we all have made, make, or will make, it, it can eat away at us and force us to abandon kind of everything else in our lives to avoid it. How important is this fear and shame? How do we strike a, a balance? How do we practice medicine appropriately with this fear at our backs? Well, one thing, I think it's actually a reflection of the quality of people who go into medicine. If people aren't capable of being shamed by their errors or, or afraid of making a mistake, then they don't care. And those are the people who can be negligent. And and thankfully, those folks are gone. You have to have a conscience in order to be shamed. And so it reflects, I think, positively in that we do care. We care deeply. So making a mistake, you know, gets us right at the core because, and irrespective of if we ever get sued or don't get sued, it's a whole separate conversation. Even if the patient did fine and we don't ever get sued, we still feel that by having made an error harmed our patients, we feel like we've done wrong to them. And we do feel ashamed. Now, of course, shame can be a paralyzing uh, emotion. And there's a you know important distinction between guilt and shame. You know, guilt prods us to make amends and fix things. Shame prods us to, to hide under the rock and weep or, or quit. 
And so I think we do want to help our trainees and our colleagues recognize that we want to feel appropriate ownership of our errors, to feel guilty when appropriate and try to fix that, but to be cognizant of the shame part, that that just wears us down. And that to recognize that it's not shameful to have made an error, it is human. And as long as you weren't negligent, that you did your best, and then as soon as you found the error, you did your best to fix it, to acknowledge the patient, to figure out how to not make that error in the future, you've done all that a human can do. And that's not shameful. That is human and that is honest and that, that, that's integrity. Um, it's the people who don't do that who I think we, we have the issues. So how do we deal with that? Well, one is that is at least acknowledging that. As you mentioned, we don't talk about that much at all. We just say, you know, be a strong resident and, you know, be good, be strong, be perfect. But what if the first day of service or the first day of medical school or the first day of orientation for new hires, that the highest brass, the chair, the chief, the chief of service says, okay, here's the top five mistakes that I made. Let me tell you how I messed up. And here's what I did. Here's how I felt. And so when that happens to you, and of course, it's not an if, but a when, recognize that this is part of the normal process, that you can come to me. I am not going to scream at you, fire you, penalize you. I want to know because our common goal is helping our patients. And so being honest and coming forward is the most important thing. And you will be rewarded for your integrity in coming forward so that we can attend to the patient. Secondarily, let's figure out how to not make this error. I would say that probably 80%, I'm making this up a little bit, of every error that, that happens has a systemic cause. Yes, maybe the nurse pulled the wrong bottle off the shelf, but there's probably 10 reasons that made that error more likely. Whether it's poor lighting, poor labeling, too busy being interrupted, having twice as many patients as she should have, all these reasons that, yes, she did make the mistake, should take ownership and try and fix it, but we can't let the system off the hook. There are probably ways that made it more likely, and there are probably things we can do to make it less likely. You know, a great example is the tubes in the OR. You've got the different gases, and for years, occasionally those tubes would get mixed up and patients would have bad outcomes. So they made the tubes different colors, but there are still mistakes. Well, they finally made them different sizes. So you can't put the wrong one on the wrong, you know, on the wrong nozzle. You can make it with this sort of field of human sort of systems engineering to make it less likely to happen. Why, you know, push our brain to remember 50,000 extra things and we can make packaging really different or make the syringes work differently so you make the mistake less likely to happen? You discuss this a, a lot in your book, When We Do Harm. One of the things that you mention is, I think you were speaking to a lawyer, interviewing a lawyer who says that the medical profession does not do a very good job of policing itself. And may, this may have to do with what we just touched on, that these conversations just don't happen. Do you think that's true? Do you think we, our profession doesn't do a great job of, of making sure that these mistakes don't happen or that we kind of mitigate or attenuate the number of mistakes that happen? I think we don't do as good a job as we could. I mean, I think a lawyer has a very different perspective. I think we do internally to ourselves but not as a community. Because we're so ashamed, we're ashamed in front of our colleagues. Who wants to own up in front of your colleagues who are your friends and people you work with that you screwed up? That's really hard to do. And so I think we have to change the atmosphere and the environment about how we handle you know, outcomes that we wouldn't have wanted. And, and maybe the way is to consider redefining what we call it. Is it a mistake? Maybe we just use the broad category of patient harm. Or, or possible harm, whether it was a mistake or just a, a bad outcome. I mean, a patient goes for a CAT scan, gets IV contrast, and goes into renal failure. It's not a mistake, but it certainly is a bad outcome for the patient. So thinking in terms of the effects on the patient, whether or not we made a, an error or not, I mean, clearly we want to distinguish out negligence, which I think is a very small percentage. We hear about that a lot in the news. It makes the news. But in fact, when you look at the numbers, it's a very small amount. But those folks, yeah, get them out, sue them, take away their licenses. But the vast majority of errors are committed by caring, committed, smart clinicians trying to do the right thing, who for whatever combination of system issues, personal issues, didn't get much sleep, is overworked, did something that that was not as good as it could have been. And 
kind of recasting it in that light and that maybe we we meet every week to talk about this as a very regular thing. Hey, what could have gone better this week instead of what went wrong this week? How could we have done this this better? And also making available anonymous, you know, reporting lines that you can say, you know, here's an error that I did or I saw. I don't feel comfortable coming forward, but I do want someone to know about it. You know, when I committed one or two of my very first big errors as an intern, I didn't talk about it. And it took me 20 years to talk about it, write about it because of the emotions, because of the shame. I wasn't worried about getting sued. I just felt like such a failure and an imposter and I couldn't talk about it. Well, beside, you know, not being able to rectify to the patient or participate in any sort of, you know, system to fix that, the error never got counted. It never got addressed. It was lost. So when we think about how to appropriate resources for making healthcare safer, we have to know what errors are occurring and where they are. And if we don't report them because of shame and emotions, we'll never know. And so we're going to be missing the boat in terms of what we do about it. I remember as an intern, I think it was my my first week of intern year, second week of intern year, I was on nights and I was asked to follow up a troponin, which for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, it's just, it's a marker of, of cardiac injury. It goes up, can go up in, in patients who are having heart attacks. And I think it was an epic, I checked very briefly, didn't see that there was a later troponin that had been ordered. I was looking at the original troponin and I thought, oh, it's stable no big deal. And then the next morning when the team came in and I was signing out to them, uh, they pointed this out to me and I was just devastated. I felt like, oh my God, I, this patient's having a heart attack. I killed this patient and this is it. This like my career is done because I, I made this terrible error. The patient ended up being just fine. It was a slight rise. It was clinically insignificant, but it's just that feeling of being totally mortified. It's, it's brutal and it can really affect you. How do how do you see this in the context of litigation? Because you, you wrote about this a little bit in When We Do Harm. What is a legal system or a compensation system within the legal system look like for, for medical errors, which in the vast majority of cases are not nefarious? They're innocent people who have just kind of made a mistake. Yeah, unfortunately, our system doesn't have much room for that kind of nuance. We only have the adversarial malpractice system, which is quite a high bar. And in fact, most patients don't get served by that because you have to prove that the error you know, caused the harm. It's not as easy to prove as you might think. And that the doctor was negligent. There's, there's a very high bar. So probably 95% of patients who've had some kind of bad outcome are not served by the malpractice system. Malpractice works well, as I mentioned, for those negligent doctor death kind of people who are doing bad things and really harm patients. It's not so good for the inadvertent error that was not negligent and maybe didn't cause major harm, but caused some harm. So I was really intrigued when I wrote the book in looking at the systems that the Nordic countries have, where they've instituted kind of a patient compensation system that is not adversarial. It's just about if the patient didn't get the standard of care they should have and and had some kind of harm, kind of like we do workers' compensation, is there some kind of harm that was experienced from the system? And can we have equitable compensation if the system was at fault, whether it's the person, the system, you know, whatever. And they have a very simple system. It doesn't cost anything to do. It also is insulated from the legal system, that anything reported there cannot be used to sue a doctor. So doctors are more likely to be honest, and they themselves help patients do this report, and they can get a modest settlement and quickly. Most malpractice uh, suits take years. The few who, quote, win may get a big settlement, but of course, it's 10 years later. Most get none at all. Everyone is emotionally ragged by the end. And so by getting a modest settlement that acknowledges that you know, it didn't quite work out the way it should have. Maybe it's not a gazillion dollars, but you can get on with your life and have some acknowledgement. More patients get served. And also it serves as a repository for finding out where the problems are. Again, even if it's not errors. So for example, if there are a lot of claims filed for pressure ulcers, patients in beds and inpatient units who don't get moved enough may get a skin breakdown. And those are of course devastating. Then you can say, wait, there's a problem here. There's a cluster. Let's send out resources to help improve that as opposed to let's sue all those doctors out of existence. Let's see what's going on. Do they need more staff? Do they need more education? How can we then 
you know, make that safer for patients in the long run. So it serves as a way to help improve the system, not just, you know, have a settlement that just, you know, transfers money. We discussed a little bit about metrics, and we hear a lot these days about physician performance metrics. So you, you had mentioned, I think, like length of hospital stay and patient ratings of physicians. I think all of this makes us very confused about what makes a great physician and how we ought to judge a physician. How should we judge physicians and assure they're doing their best in a world that is so clearly imperfect? What is that kind of I don't know. I hate calling it a rating system, but what does that kind of system look like? You know, I, I don't know if it exists. I think it's very difficult. You know, the things we measure, we measure them because they're easy to measure. It doesn't necessarily make them accurate. So a good example is, I t- as a primary care doctor, I take care of lots of patients with diabetes. And so we have a metric, the percentage of your patients with an A1C less than eight, a measurement of glucose control, right? The more patients at the you know normal level, seemingly the better doctor you are. Now, I have a couple of patients who do not want to take insulin, and their A1Cs are very high. Now, if I were nasty to them and they left my practice, my numbers would look better, right? Because I have fewer patients with with abnormal glucose. But if I try really hard to bring them in, spend time and talk with them and keep them coming to their visits, I will look worse because my numbers are worse. Is that being a worse doctor? I would think not. I think I'm being a better doctor by working so hard with these patients who are having challenging situations, but that one metric won't capture that. And so it's an imperfect measure. You know, perhaps a better way is to look at maybe the whole institution and not the each individual doctor. I mean, perhaps you can pull out the outliers, but of course, who are those outliers? Are they the ones who take on the sicker patients? So you have to, you know, I think really correct for that. When New York State started publishing mortality rates for cardiac surgeons, what did they do? They stopped taking sick patients, so their numbers looked better. So the, the patients actually suffer with fewer doctors, but it also it makes it unfair for the surgeons who take on the sick patients. So we have to have some kind of correction for the level of sickness or complexity or socioeconomic challenge that goes into that, you know, because you can cherry pick those numbers so easily. So I think there's a role for those numbers, but I think it needs context. You know, what is the patient population? How sick are they? What are the challenges those patients have? And I don't know quite how you you correct for that, but some acknowledgement of that. But I think there are other things as well. You know, patient self-reports, you know, of course, again, one or two angry patients can can damage that. So I'm not a huge fan of those online ratings because it's usually the patients who are angriest and often about things that aren't about the doctor. They had to wait too long in the waiting room. That usually isn't the doctor's control system. It's just the, the way things are. So I'd want a, a more global system that puts the doctor in context to the system they're in. And, you know, if, if two systems have different resources, so, so to compare what the wait time is at Sloan Kettering versus Bellevue, it's not fair because Sloan Kettering has many more resources and a lot more money. So some way to acknowledge that would be would be very important. Last question. One of the strange things about medicine is how often we encounter grief and death. Others and even, you know, our family members and think about our own death. Uh, It's unique to this profession with the exception of perhaps uh, fighting in a war. And, And you kind of framed it in this way. We form relationships, but our partners in these relationships die off with a regularity that isn't common elsewhere. And every patient encounter is some ways an encounter with death. How do you deal with this imminent tragedy in, in daily practice or, or avoid letting it kind of sap your human reserves? It's not easy. I think we all grapple with that. But I try to think of the flip side of the privilege of being the one able to be there with your patient at their time of death, that it's really an honor to help someone's death be easier to be less painful, to be more dignified, to recognize that's part of medicine and part of our job is, you know, holding their hand all the way to the end. And it is sad. And certainly, you know, the COVID time, you know, we all lost a lot of patients. I lost a lot of my longtime patients. And, but to recognize also that the capacity to be sad, I think if we're not sad when our patients die, that's a problem but that we get to be in this very intimate situation with our patients. I mean, listen, you could have Google take care of your patients, right? And it could probably do a you know, halfway decent job. But as the patient, 
you, you don't want that. You want the real nurse and doctor to be with you because there's more to medicine than just writing the right prescriptions. And you can see the difference between curing and healing. And someone could have all the right cancer treatments and die a miserable death, or they can have all the right treatments and die a death that's pain-free or less painful, more dignified, and and that's the part that we get to do. So I try to keep thinking of as what we're privileged to, to be part of and recognize that my patient died, but maybe I had a role in making and easing their pain along the way. And then just, you know, taking that time to, to think about that, this sort of solemnity, the same way I think that soldiers do, that you're in a war and there are losses are part of it. And that's why we have good colleagues. That's why we have the humanities, literature, and art to, to have a place to, you know, again, not find closure, but to find resonance. And, and I think that's why we, we do turn to poetry. I think a lot about when BLR, when the Bellevue Literary Review was first founded, our first issue was coming out in September of 2001. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. And it was quite a shock. And we had planned an opening gala and reading. And we were debating, do we do it? Do we not? We're all in the state of shock. And it was scheduled for October 7th of that year, I think. We finally decided we'll, we'll go on with it. It's going to be at Bellevue Hospital in the in Rotunda. And that morning, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and we were at war. So, oh my gosh, nobody's going to come. Between all the portraits of the missing in front of Bellevue, we're now in a state of war. And do you know that we had standing room only. We had more than 100 people come to Bellevue to hear poetry and fiction. And I think it, it speaks to the fact that when we are in pain or in a vulnerable moment, we turn to the arts and to humanities because dealing with those kind of issues, those shades of gray, the ambiguities, that's where art plays a role. We don't solve anything with art, but it is a place to be together, to have a community and to be with the nuances that, that art deals with so well that we often in our own little heads don't do so well. So I try to think of that, you know, with my patients as they're coming to the end of their lives to think about the multiple layers of their lives, where I can find inspiration and offer to them. And then, yeah, I do go home and cry. That happens too. On that note, Dr. Elfrey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And I urge all our listeners to check out Bellevue Literary Review. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.